good. All right. Um, if you've been with us thus far, or if you're uh, new to RUF, this is your first time, we have been looking at the storyline of Scripture. And what we've been doing is kind of taking a broad, kind of overarching look at the narrative of the Bible. And we've said every single week that there's four main acts, four main chapters to the storyline of Scripture itself. It begins with creation, then fall, then redemption, and then consummation. We spent three weeks now looking at creation, exploring what that is, what that means, why that's important. And so today, we are going to move out of the world of creation and move into the second chapter of the story, namely the fall. So let's just jump right in. Genesis chapter 3 is where you find the fall into sin. You know, two chapters in, and, uh, you know, it already nosedives down. But uh, here it is. This is God's Word, and we're going to begin looking in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, are desperate for your help. We have no hope of learning or understanding what this passage says apart from your intervening help. So we ask, Holy Spirit, would you please come? Would you please open up our eyes and unclog our ears, soften our hearts so that the gospel would be attractive, so that the Lord Jesus himself would, would be attractive and we would be drawn to him. But we ask that you would do this for your glory and through Jesus we pray. Amen. Every worldview, every philosophical system, and yourself, yourself as individuals, you have to ask yourself this question. Where does evil come from? How do you explain death? Some of you have experienced death, the death of uh, of a friend or the death of a family member. How do you explain this? How do you explain genocide and holocaust and child abuse and suicide? 
the the ruin of creation is begging for an explanation. Why is the world the way that it is? And I think it's interesting. Every worldview, every system has to give an answer. Even the Eastern religions, which say that evil is just an illusion, that it's not really there, that still itself is a way to explain what we do with this thing that seems so bad about the world. And there are plenty of perspectives that explain away death or moral evil. That, you know, like if something comes to life, okay, so it has to die. If something is good, there has to be an opposite to it, right? Uh, Bad, evil. They have to kind of coexist. And I want to suggest that those are very shallow explanations because there is an ache in your soul that there is something wrong with the world. Things are not the way that they are supposed to be. When you look around at the world, you, you see there is a cosmic malfunction here. Something has gone seriously wrong. I mean, read the news. Check the, you know, update on the uh, internet website. I mean, it's, it's horrific, the stuff that you hear, the stuff that you read, the stuff that you know about yourself. But the question is, why? How did this get here? What is the explanation of all this? Well, the Christian worldview has an answer, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's, it's called the fall. The fall into sin. The good creation that we've been talking about for the past three weeks or so Something went awry. We've been hinting at it for several weeks now. What happened? Today we're going to look at it. So Genesis chapter 3 uh, raises three questions and it answers three questions. What is behind the fall? What is from the fall? And what's beyond the fall? What's behind it? What's from it? And what's beyond it? So, okay, first question. What's behind the fall? Before we can really understand what's really the the thing that's behind it, that's underneath this fall into sin, we have to put this passage in its context. And this is why I put these two little verses uh, up to the top. Chapter 2, verse 16. Read it with me. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Some of your translations, if you're following along, may say, uh, you may surely eat. The one that I picked, this is from the NIV, says you are free to eat. Both of these translations are trying to capture in English what is going on in the original Hebrew. Now, in English, if we're writing something and we want to emphasize it, what do we do? We bold it, we underline it, we italicize it. Hebrew had its own sort of you know, convention as well, and they doubled it. So literally, it reads, you may eat, eat of any tree in the garden. This is for emphasis. You may eat. It's all for you. This is the same reason why in Isaiah 6, uh, when God is described as holy, he's not just described as holy. He's described as holy, 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 right? Three together, he's like crazy, super holy. This is the same reason why uh, Appalachian is not just hot. Appalachian is hot, 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 right? This is, this is the, uh, these are superlative emphasizing things that even when it's cold, 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 Appalachian is hot, hot, hot. This is the same concept that's going on in the original Hebrew. It says, you may eat, eat. You are free to eat. It's all for you. This is an all-you-can-eat buffet. And, so, okay, what does it say next? There, there, there is a generous... Uh, provision, but there's also a prohibition. There's a restriction here. The, the next verse it says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. You see that surely die? It's the same thing in, in, in the original Hebrew. You, may, you will die, die if you eat of this. 
It's not just going to be a slap on the wrist. It's not just going to be a flesh wound. It is going to be catastrophically awful. Don't eat of this. We're talking humanity will be wiped out. You are free to eat of all of it. Don't eat of this. So this is the background. And so in comes this serpent, this talking serpent, Satan himself, into the scene in Genesis chapter 3.1. And what does he do? He immediately begins to attack the authority of God's word. This is what he says in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from, the, from any tree in the garden? Now what is he doing? Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Why is he phrasing it like this? He, he is strategically trying to plant a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. He is trying to uh, overemphasize God's restriction. Did God say you can't eat anything? And what he's, what he's trying to do is plant a little seed in, in, of, of dissatisfaction and say, God is not really trustworthy. It doesn't seem like God is really out for your good here. Did he really say you can't eat anything? And so he, he, is, he is going after her and saying, basically, your God is, is a miser. He's, he's greedy. Is this really the God that you're hanging out with? And so what's her response? It's extremely interesting if you look at it. She says kind of three things uh, in verse 2. It says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden. You notice what she didn't say. She didn't say we may eat eat. She just said we may eat. Already God's generous provision is being kind of downplayed. It's being minimized. She said, yeah, like we can eat. Step one, the serpent is already starting to restructure the way that she's thinking. He's already starting to shift around her authority. So then what, she, what does she say next? But God did say, you must not eat fruit from that tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Did God say that you can't touch it? Look back up into you know, 2, 16, and 17. God does not say this. She is superimposing her own commandment. She's superimposing another rule. So what is she doing? Step two is the restriction, the prohibition is being exaggerated. She's elaborating on the fact, yeah, God was really restrictive here. He said you can't even touch it. And then what is she, the, the last thing she says, uh, you must not eat fruit, tr- uh, fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Down to the last phrase, she gets it wrong. She says, we may die. She doesn't say, we will die, die. The consequences are being lessened. All the way to the end, you can see something is happening in her mind. The the generosity of God is being downplayed. The restriction of God is being maximized. And the punishments are being diluted. This is what is going on. And So what do we see in the very next scene? The serpent responds, verse 4, You will not surely die. He gets the language right. You will not die, die. But what is he doing? He is directly, right up front, assaulting the authority of God's word. He is saying, uh, God is keeping you from, uh, from being wise. God is keeping you from uh, being uh, everything that you could be. In other words, God is not trustworthy. He is not out for your own good. Don't listen to him. Take matters up into your own hands. And so in the very next scene, she's looking at the fruit. She's studying it with all of these considerations in mind. And what does she do? Verse uh, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Her entire 
uh, authority structure has changed. No longer is God's word the ruling voice of reason. It's hers now. So she takes it, eats it, gives it to her husband. He eats and they disobey. What's behind the fall? What's behind this? What's underneath this? It is ultimately prideful unbelief. It is not wanting to serve God. It is wanting to be God. It's, it's saying, hey God, I know that you've said this is true, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. It is a declaration of independence. When you look at your life and all the ways that it is messed up or all the ways that it is broken, this is the, this is the driving thing that is underneath it all. When I look at my life, this is the thing that is underneath and behind all of my sinful decisions, all of my sinful actions. It is prideful unbelief. For example, I mean, just think of one. Just pick one example. Why would you get trashed on the weekend? Just throw it out there. Why? Well, because you would say, uh, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure God probably doesn't want me to kick back eight cocktails or drink you know, 12 PBRs in a row, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. God's authority does not matter here. I don't believe that's going to matter. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands and do it myself. Prideful unbelief. Well, what's the reason behind hooking up? Sort of, you know, premarital, college sex that's, you know, going all over the place. What's the reason behind it? Why would, uh, why would people do that? I think ultimately it's because somebody who's looking at themselves does not believe that they are accepted because of what Jesus has done. And because of that insecurity, they're so fragile in their self-image that they're willing to, to compromise their sexual ethics so that they will get the approval and the acceptance that they need. Underneath it all is unbelief. It is not believing the gospel. This is what is behind uh, all of the reasons why your life is the way that it is, messed up. These are the reasons why my life is the way that it is, messed up, prideful, unbelief. And it all boils down to this issue. What is your authority? What are you listening to? What are you submitting to? What are you hearing and saying, okay, I'm going to listen to that voice and not this voice? For some of you, it's the voice of, if it feels good, do it. You're trusting your feelings. If it feels good, I'll do it. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It feels good, therefore, that's all the reason I need. But it's not just unbelief, it's prideful unbelief. It's about me. It's, about, it's not about anyone else, it's about what I want to do. You get to set the agenda. You get to set the terms of your life, not anybody else, not God's. And this is a huge issue. This is the reason behind why your life is the way that it is. This is the reason why my life is the way that it is. This is the reason behind genocide. This is the reason behind sex trafficking, the reason behind child abuse. People have made decisions to say, I'm going to listen to this voice and not God's. This interpretation of the world is going to rule my life and not God's. Imagine if we did this with, uh, with our cars. You know, if we, li- if we look at our uh, car manufacturer and we say, okay, I know that you said that the best way to operate this machine is to put gas in it, but I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. I think it's going to run best on pancake syrup. <laughs> I mean, we just don't... This is what we do. And, and this is the reason why the world is the way that it is. It, there is an impulse, a sinful impulse behind and underneath the fall, and it is prideful unbelief. And if this is why the world is the way that it is, what has happened? What has come from the fall? What is, what is the result? Okay, so the next thing. What are the practical consequences of this one act of disobedience in the story of Scripture? 
A couple weeks ago, I guess it was last week, I went to cookout for the first time. I know I say that confessionally. Uh, I know that it's a big deal. And uh, I got the uh, uh, orange push-up shake. It's delightful. I, uh, I recommend it. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It was really good. But, you know, basically all that it is is... Vanilla ice cream with like a squirt of orange stuff that they just kind of spin up together. And so the orange dreamsicle flavor or orange push-up flavor gets kind of swirled around and it colors all of the ice cream and it flavors it all. That's the same thing that's happening at the fall. Not orange squirt, but sin. Sin is permeating and, and affecting every square inch of creation. There is not one square inch that is not discolored, that is not flavored, that is not uh, affected by sin. And we see three in particular uh, fallouts of the, uh, of the fall here. That your relationship with yourself is radically changed. Your relationship with God is radically changed, and your relationship with people, with each other, is radically changed. Let's look at um, uh, the first one. Your relationship with yourself. Verse 7. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Why are they wrapping themselves in fig leaves? Why do they feel like they need to cover themselves? It's not in your handout, but if you look back at Genesis 2.25, it describes... Humanity's relationship with God as being non-sinful. Humanity was perfectly communing with God, enjoying his fellowship and enjoying that relationship. And it says that they were naked and unashamed. And since the fall, now because of sin, they are having to clothe themselves up because of shame. And this is so loaded, and we can't fully unpack what it's talking about here. But suffice it to say that when, we pl- when humanity plunged into sin, we plunged into bondage to sin. Meaning that as, after that point, after Adam and Eve did that, humanity is now no longer able to not sin. You see what I'm saying? Bondage. You are no longer able to not sin. It's like the movie The Matrix. You know, you, you are, uh, you're, you're born, but your real body, your physical self is kind of like in a, in a vat. But your, your brain is hooked up to wires, and so you think that you are in a computer program. You are in a computer program, but you're thinking that you're in the real world. But you are in bondage. You are in prison to this world, to this computer program, to The Matrix. And you can't get out of it unless somebody from the outside invades and pulls you out and rescues you. We are born into bondage. And this means that you are not a sinner because you sin. Am I saying that right? You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. This is a very important distinction. Because it's talking about your nature now, your core, the core of your being. The reason that you are a sinner is not because you commit X, Y, and Z sin. It is rather... Uh, the reason that you are committing X, Y, and Z sin is because you are a sinner. This is part of your very nature now. You are uh, born with this bondage. This is who I am, unable to sin, unable to not sin, rather. And because we are this way, we are guilty, and we feel guilty. And this is why we have to cover ourselves up in the way that we do. This is why we have to smile and pretend like, it's, like we've got it all together when we know we don't. This is why they are covering themselves up because of the shame. The shame of what it feels like to know, okay, I've messed up. I've got these skeletons in my closet. I've got these secrets in my past I don't want anybody to know about. I'm not even going to go there. So I'm going to put up the walls. I'm going to put up the masks. And I'm going to pretend and not let anybody in. 
Because there is something that has happened. Breakdown. Bondage to sin. Shame. So that's the first thing. Your relationship with yourself is messed up is also well as your relationship with God is radically affected. In verse uh, 8, to 8 through 10, I'm not going to read it, but the Lord comes into the garden and what does Adam and Eve do? What do they do? They run. They hide. The relationship that they had before that was, they were enjoying the communion of God. Now they are running and hiding. Why are they doing this? It's because there is a rift in the relationship. When I was in college, I, w- I went to the University of Oklahoma, and the Greek scene there was enormous. And we were not in the Greek scene, and we liked to pick on people in the Greek scene just because we were stupid like that. And uh, one night there is this uh, huge uh, frat party of all these guys hanging out on their porch, drinking, hanging out, doing their thing. And we are, you know, maybe one street over with one of those, you know, three man, uh, water balloon launchers. You know what I'm talking about? Where one guy's like this and the other guy's like this. And then the other guy pulls it back. And there's like a team of about four to six of us out there that night. And we're launching them across the street, hitting this uh, frat party, just smashing a water. And we could get off about three or four before we, you know, rattled the hornet's nest. And about 15 frat guys start pouring over the, the uh, you know, the, the little porch there in our you know, sprinting in our direction. So, of course, we drop everything and start, you know, running into campus as fast as we can because frat guys are big, strong, angry guys, and, you know, we are not. And uh, <laughs> they would they would severely hurt us. So as we are running through campus, me and my friend, you know, they're, they're gaining on us. We don't know where else to go, so we dip down a little, you know, sideway of, of campus and jump into a dumpster and, hi- <laughs> and, are, and are hiding scared for our lives in this dumpster because we know we have upset some very powerful people. And uh, so we spent, I don't know, 30 minutes or so hiding, hiding in a dumpster, praying that nobody finds us. Adam and Eve are doing something very similar. They are running and hiding because they know they have upset somebody they should not have upset. God is coming after them. And because they have offended God, they know that infinite wrath and justice and punishment is coming with God. Infinite wrath. Now you may be thinking, okay, that sounds a little over the top. God, they just ate a piece of fruit, right? What's the deal? But think of it this way. I've shared this in freshman Bible study, and I've shared this before at RUF, so if you've heard it, you get to hear it again. But think of it this way. If you were to come up here and slap me, what would happen? Well, some of y'all would laugh. I would cry. And, uh, but that would basically be it. There would be no severe consequences to that action. But what if you were to go and slap uh, Chancellor Peacock? The same action, you would probably, well, you would be thrown out of school and probably thrown into jail. Same action. What if you slapped President Obama? You probably would not even be able to connect your hand with his face before Secret you know, Service you know, laid you out and took you down with a rifle or something, you know? The same act, slapping, had radically different consequences for each level of authority. So what happens when we slap God? Simple little slap. Adam and Eve, little slap. Didn't eat your fruit that you said not to. Infinite 
punishment because we are offending an infinite authority. And this is why they are running and this is why they are hiding because they know they have upset somebody they should not have. So the relationship with God is fractured, the relationship with ourselves is fractured, and the relationship with each other is fractured. Verse uh, 10 through 13 again. Uh, I'll, I'll read this one. He, he answered, uh, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he said, and God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you to not eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate. It wasn't me. She did it. Blame shifting. I'm not going to assume responsibility. She did it. And so what does the woman say when God goes and talks to her? Verse uh, 13, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Constant blame shifting. Nobody's taking responsibility. Relationships are disintegrating and falling apart. Now listen, I don't have to paint a very textured picture here. You know that relationships are messed up. You know about divorce Some of you have experienced it. You've gone through the horrific things of seeing your family split. You have uh, experienced or know friends that have experienced really messy breakups. You know about uh, how hard it is sometimes to get along with your roommate. Relationships are just hard. They're broken. People are sinful and messed up. And when you put two of them together, it's just going to get worse. I don't have to paint a a picture here to to present this to you. But I do want you to think about this. In your relationships with others, the other people that you're having relationships with, and it's hard, be it your roommate, boyfriend or girlfriend, whoever, have you considered that maybe the reason that it's hard is not just their fault, maybe it's yours as well. Maybe it's not just them, their sin. Maybe your sin is involved as well. It has to be. It is radiating out of you. It's radiating out of me. This is the effects of the fall. This is what comes from the fall. Every area of creation is now affected. It it, it is the prideful unbelief that is behind and underneath the fall, and we see the breakdown of creation in every single way. This is the practical consequence. So, okay, lastly, what's beyond the fall? What is God's reaction to this? Well, he looks back and he looks at his creation that is now marred and is now ruined because of sin. He looks at his images that he created in his own image that are now rebellious and in bondage to sin. And what does he do? He does three things. He pursues, he promises, and he provides. First, he he pursues. In verse 8 and 9, what does he say? Then the man in the... Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? God says, Where are you? He is seeking after the lost. He has formed a search committee, you know, and he is going after and seeking for people who want nothing to do with him, people who are hiding, people who, ha- who have turned their back and, and are running, and he is running after them. The good news of the God of the Bible is that He is the one that initiates. He is the one that is aggressively chasing and seeking after His children that have given Him the finger and that are wayward, and we see Him running and pursuing after them, initiating. Where are you? But He doesn't just pursue, He promises. Verse 315, 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see him promising. He says, I will do this. This is something I'm promising to do. And what he is saying is I will put enmity. He's talking to the serpent. Enmity between you and the woman. Enmity. What is that? It means bitter hostility. Warfare. Every time it's used in the Bible, it, it literally means uh, hostile intent to the point of murder. Hatred to the point of shedding blood. He says, I am establishing a conflict here between you and the woman, a battle that I am initiating, and it's going to be gruesome and it's going to be awful between the serpent and the woman. That's kind of, there's three tiers to this uh, Promise three playing fields, and the first one is between serpent and the woman, and the other, if you you know the the uh, very next little phrase, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He's saying, okay, serpent, woman, I'm going to put bitter warfare between all of your children, all of your descendants, and all of this woman's descendants. Okay, what in the world is going on there? Really, physical physical children of snakes and physical children of this woman are going to be in battle for the rest of. You know, the universe? No, it's talking about spiritual children. People who are spiritually aligned with either the serpent or people who are spiritually aligned with the woman. This is why uh, Jesus in uh, John eight forty four, he's talking with some Pharisees and he says this, If God were your father, you would love me. But you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. Everybody has a spiritual father. Your father, spiritually, is either Satan himself or God. This is why Christians pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, right? There's a spiritual lineage. There's a spiritual warfare between, wow, uh, two different collective people groups. Okay, that's the second tier. The third tier, the third playing field, something happens Really weird, grammatically in the text. Look at it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All of this talk about these people groups all now starts talking about a single individual, a he, a male individual, a single male. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be a male descendant that's going to come in the future from the woman through her lineage who is going to render a defeating mortal death blow on the serpent's skull. And Satan himself is also going to render a defeating, crushing blow on this particular individual. What is this talking about? Who is this talking about? If you've ever read... Uh, the Gospel of Luke, and you get to the early chapters, and you get to that genealogy, that long family tree of Jesus, you know, saying he's, you know, the father of this, father of this, you know, and you're just like, why is this here? Skip, you know, move on. Why, why is that there? Why is the Gospel of Luke so concerned that you understand that Jesus is traced all the way back to Adam and Eve? Because here he is. Here is the he that this verse is talking about, all the way back. He is the one that has come to fix what is wrong now with the world. He is the one that has come to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one to fix what is ruined and broken in this world. In this raging battle, this conflict between the two of them climaxes at the cross, doesn't it? Because we see Jesus barbarically tortured. 
and bleeding all over the place and strung up on a cross. And it looks like Genesis 3.15 isn't true. It looks like the serpent has won. It looks like sin has prevailed. And then what happens? Three days later, Jesus rises again. And that is the defeating death blow to the serpent. Death itself is defeated. Jesus wins by losing. Jesus uh, lives by dying. And in that moment, when he himself is getting crushed, he is defeating and crushing in the head of the serpent. One of the commentators put it like this, At the cross, Jesus is openly embarrassing the powers of darkness. Sin and death could not handle what Jesus threw at it. And he raises again to fix the world aright. This is what God promises. But he does one last thing. God provides. Read uh, this last little verse that I tacked on. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Man's lousy attempt to, to cover himself is now rectified. God graciously covers him with a covering that is finally sufficient. But of course, where did these animal skins come from? Were they just lying on the ground? And God is like, silly humans, you should have picked up these instead of those fig leaves. <laughs> no. Where do they come from? God, indirectly it insinuates, kills an animal. And then he's, he wraps his people in the skin of that sacrifice. Because when God said, if you disobey me, you will die, die. This is going to be a very serious thing. God should have, or, or rather God could have, wiped out humanity right on the spot and had been totally justified. And that would have been fair. And God would have been good and glorified to do it. But he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? Instead of destroying the people who deserved it, out of utter grace, he destroys an animal as their substitute. And then he wraps them in that sacrifice and says, this is sufficient. Nothing but grace upon grace. That what we should have received, the death blow, the mortal, wrathful death blow, is not taken out on us, but is taken out on a substitute. And of course, this little event that happened way back in Genesis 3.15 is just a hint It's just a promise. It's just a foreshadowing of what is to come when Jesus comes and dies on the cross. Because what is he doing? He is is stepping in as our substitute, and he is receiving the death blow, the blow of God's wrath that we should have received as sinful, rebellious people. And God casts him out so that we could be brought in. And then he covers us in Jesus' sacrifice so that we are in Christ now. This is God's promise. This is what God provides. You have one who is seeking you, who promises to love you, who promises to crush himself in your stead. You have one who says, I will cover you, and you can be safe and vulnerable with your shame and with your sickness and with your sinfulness, but you have to come and you have to repent over the ways that you have been pridefully unbelieving. You have to repent of the ways that you, have, that, that you say, yes, I love my sin and I'm in bondage to it and I have contributed to this way that the world is. The, the gospel says that we have to repent and believe, repent of our sinfulness, repent of the ways that we are this messed up. And just own it and acknowledge it and be honest with it and then believe and trust 
and fall into Jesus and say, your sacrifice, your substitution is sufficient. And I want to be clothed in what you have to offer because I just have rags to cover myself. This is an invitation. It's an invitation to return to Jesus if you have known him. It's an invitation to come to Jesus if you don't. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, pierce our hearts with the good news that we have a Savior who has crushed the serpent, who who has killed death, who has rendered sin incapable. Father, I pray that the sacrifice that you have made of your Son on the cross would be sweet news to our ears and that we would sing and that we would worship in a new, in a sense, in a, in a uh, fresh new way. We pray that you would do this because we are desperate for it. In our sins, we are incapable. We need you to intervene and invade our hearts. And we ask you to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.